I'd invite you to find 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. We're going to consider verses 11 through 16 today in a message entitled, A Life Worth Living. So if you'll find 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'll be with you there in just a moment. As we look around at all of the problems that are easily identifiable in our culture, we see that there are foundational problems that are resulting in these symptoms that we see. People offer all sorts of solutions to problems in our society, problems among children, problems among our government, and all these problems have one fundamental solution, that is a spiritual solution that is to be found in Christ. And this spiritual problem that we have that needs the solution of Christ also results in family problems. And nearly every problem in culture is tied back to a deficiency spiritually, a brokenness spiritually, a separation from God spiritually that foundationally affects families. And men are absent in many families. Uh, Families are broken and struggling, and no solution will ultimately solve the problem other than the solution of the gospel, which is our hope in Christ. And as we think about what it means to live a life worth living, we recognize that God is calling us to something that is different from what we see normally around us in the world. Character is a term that is in and of itself morally neutral. It's comprised of moral qualities that are distinctive to an individual. So when we talk about someone's character, we have to put a modifier on it to determine what type of character it really is. Character is used to describe a person's most prominent attributes, the things that result in our lives because of who we are. It's the sum total of who we are. And ultimately, our character is not defined by how we project ourselves to others. It's not even defined about in the way of what I think about you or what you think about me. My true character is known by God. And when we use the modifier good, as in good character, we're referring to admirable character. We are referring to something that we would want to emulate something that we would want to practice. And we're conditioned often to define ourselves, first of all, in terms of our accomplishments rather than in terms of our character. Isn't that interesting that when someone asks us about ourselves, we want to find our identity in what we do rather than who we are. Not that what we do is unimportant, but it's first our identity in Christ and our standing with him, our relationship with God And it's not our accomplishments that ultimately define us. It's our character that ultimately defines us. Character is the foundation which defines who we are and is how other people would describe us who really know us. And character also determines what we will become. The legendary basketball coach John Wooden said that uh, talent will get you to the top, but it's character that will keep you there. So strong character coupled with intentional purpose can result in a trajectory that will cause a life that is worth living. Who you are, determining what you do and how you invest your life, will result in a life that is worth living to God. 1 Timothy is referred to as a pastoral epistle. Paul instructed Timothy regarding the assignment that Timothy had to serve the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 1, he greets Timothy and then warns against false teaching and then begins to emphasize good doctrine. As he progresses through the book in chapters 2 through 4, he declares God's desire for people to be saved, and then he goes into some specific 
instructions on how the church is to organize themselves and particularly how leadership is to be exercised within God's church in a an orderly way that would honor the Lord and advance the church. When he gets to chapters 5 and 6, he's given guidelines for relationships within the church. And then in chapter 6, Paul warns against false teachers who do not agree with sound instruction. He also warns against the issue of finding contentment or placing our faith in money. He said, you got to look out for these things in the world because if you're putting your trust in riches rather than in God, ultimately you're going to end up empty. Your trust and your hope has to be in God. So we pick up reading in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. This is what the Bible says. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of of many witnesses. Verse 13, in the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments that you've blessed us with. We're so grateful that you've given us your word and your spirit. And we look to your son as the one whose character we desire to emulate, that as he is, so shall we be in this world. And I ask you today, as we think about these truths together, that you would help us to evaluate our lives and ask whether or not we're truly living a life that is worth living, how we are using the talents and the gifts and the resources that you have entrusted to us, how we're leading our families and loving our neighbors and reaching out to the lost. All these things, Lord, we want to do to honor and glorify you and to lift up the name of Jesus. So I pray you'd help us in these moments. Teach us, Holy Spirit. And as we leave this place today, I pray that we would be stronger because of it and more faithful servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we pray it in his name. Amen. You'll notice here that there is a stark contrast between the false teachers and the faithful man of God. The false teachers were from the world. They were not only from the world, but they were of the world, meaning that their mindset, their desires, their focus, their aspirations, their purpose was all about them and what they were going to get out of it rather than serving God's people. But Timothy is identified here as a man of God. This is an interesting term or phrase because man of God is a phrase that's used only here. And then again in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17 in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, it's the way that Moses and Samuel and Elijah and David were referred to, and the term referred to a person that was not only completely surrendered to God, but also a person who had the responsibility or the charge to speak on behalf of God. So all of the Old Testament references, when it's referring to the man of God, reflect someone who uniquely represented God by being surrendered to him, 
and then also speaking the word of God. And the sum of all of those uses tells us that it's a reference to a person who is yielded completely to God doing the work of God. And when Timothy is called the man of God here, it's telling us something about his call, that he had been set apart to be used of God. He was serving the church of the living Christ. He was carrying out the will of God in the world. And Paul's reminding him and also encouraging him, listen, you are the man of God. You are the servant of God, and you're supposed to be doing the will of God. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17, we have a bit of an expansion, if you will, on this idea of the man of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that, watch this, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, perfect and complete is what the scripture indicates, to do the work of God. And while Timothy is the focus in this context, since he's the recipient of the letter, and since his own conversion has been mentioned in the verses preceding this, the term in use in verse 17 in 2 Timothy chapter 3 broadens beyond just any man of God. This is Timothy who was the man of God. But it goes beyond that to every believer. Because the word of God was not only intended for Timothy, the word of God was intended for all believers. It's intended for the church. And the church is to receive this word so that we can be complete and we can be equipped for every good work that God has for us. So what I want to show you in these few moments that we have together are some characteristics of a life worth living. Characteristic number one is this. A life worth living is one that runs from sin. A life worth living is one that runs from sin. Look again in verse 11. The scripture says... Now you, man of God, run from these things. Now these things are the temptations to be drawn away toward discontentment and finding your hope in possessions and riches and things that are contrary to the way of God. So he's speaking broadly and categorically here, but the idea of running away from or keeping away from or fleeing from is interesting And specifically, while he's saying that you are to run from the evil that is caused by the love of money, he's also reminding us that throughout the Bible, we are instructed to run from sin. We are told explicitly and directly and plainly how we are to respond to sin as believers. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 says that we are to run from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14 says that we are to run from idolatry. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22 says that we are to run from youthful lust. Now here's the deal. Sin has the potential or the capacity to entice us. After all, Our enemy is going to present something to us that looks good. It looks like there's going to be a pleasurable payoff. And the reality is there might be a momentary pleasurable payoff. But what we often don't see is the consequences that will follow that momentary and ultimately unsatisfying pleasure that we get from sin. When we're enticed, we can then be trapped. There are people who are trapped by life-besetting sins. And maybe you're one of those people, a life besetting sin has gotten a hold of you and you are trapped up in it. I'm here to tell you today that only Christ can set you free. It will not be by your own effort. It will not be by your own strength. It will not be by your own longing even to be free from it. It is only Christ who can set you free from that entrapment that you find yourself in. 
And then sin can dominate us, take over our lives, ultimately destroy us, and even kill us from a physical perspective. James gives us a little bit of an outline about the anatomy of sin. In James chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, he says, But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. To run, to keep away from, to flee comes from a word from which we get our English word fugitive. Now, not in the sense of running from something we shouldn't be running from, but in the sense of the intensity of how we are to be running from sin and constantly fleeing from this potential captor that we find ourselves encountering. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the 1960s show, The Fugitive. And just for the record, I was not born. I don't remember it. I saw it in reruns, but it was only in reruns. However, in 1993, there was a movie that was made by that same name, The Fugitive. You remember it was Harrison Ford and uh, Tommy Lee Jones that starred in it. And you remember a little bit about the, the plot after he was wrongfully convicted for the murder of his wife and unjustly sentenced to death. Dr. Richard Kimball, who was a Chicago vascular surgeon, escaped from custody after a bus and a train wreck. Now, if you saw the movie, you remember when that bus hit that train and split it in half and it rolled down the hillside and there was fire, chaos ensued. And the doctor realized in that moment, this was his opportunity to get away from his potential captors who were led by the U.S. Marshals. And the way that he fled, the only way I can describe that is it was pandemonium. I mean, you remember he, he jumped over the, the waterfall. I mean, there were all sorts of things. It was total chaos. But what he was doing was he was doing whatever it took to get away. And this is the picture that I have in my mind even as I think about what it means to run from sin. The Bible does not say, take your time when you encounter sin. The Bible does not say just meander along when you encounter sin. It doesn't say just leisurely move away from sin at your own pace. It says to run, to flee from it, to get away from it. What does fleeing from sin look like? Well, I think it's radical. and I think it requires a total commitment. The example in the Old Testament that comes to mind is the example of Joseph in Potiphar's house in Genesis 39. When Potiphar's wife propositions Joseph, first he uh, flatly refuses her, and then when that's not enough, she grabs hold of his garment, and Joseph takes off running. Now, that doesn't seem very dignified that a grown man would run away from something, but in that moment, that's what he was willing to do. He was desperate as a man to do what God wanted him to do. And friend, if you're going to run from sin, you've got to be desperate in your life to do what God wants you to do. You can't be drawn away by your own affections. You can't be drawn away by sin. You can't be tempted by the things that seem pleasurable. You have to have a complete and total commitment to say, I'm going to honor God. Whatever the cost is, I'm going to honor God. And when we encounter dangerous circumstances in life, we certainly try to get away from them. We recognize the enemy. We run from the enemy and we do not compromise. Is your life one that is characterized by running from sin or entertaining sin 
and compromising. Characteristic number two, a life worth living is one that pursues holiness. Now watch this. We're not just running from something. We are running to something. Now here's the lie the enemy will tell you. If you are totally committed to God and you are sold out to him and you love Jesus and you run away from sin, you're giving up something that you deserved. God's just a killjoy. God just wants to take the pleasure out of your life. It's not worth it. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. But what I want you to understand today that whatever it is that you're running from, whatever it is that you're fleeing away from, whatever it is that you are getting away from as quickly as you possibly can, it pales in comparison to the treasure and the blessing that God has for you. To be right with your creator, to know the one who made you, the one who created you in his image, to be in right standing with him, to know that his hand is upon your life, that his spirit is pleased with the way that you live, that your life is consistent with his word. There's nothing that this world has to offer that can even come close to what God has for you if you will run to him and pursue holiness. To pursue is an eagerness and a diligence in going after something. Not only will we be known for what we run from, we will be known for what we run to. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst is a metaphor that doesn't resonate very well for us in our prosperous Western context. Most of us haven't been very hungry or very thirsty without being satisfied very quickly. I was in Peru just some weeks back, and the Venezuelan refugee crisis there is profoundly problematic. People who are not able to get the basic essentials and necessities of life are doing whatever they can to get their family to a place where they can find provision. I was talking to one young man who had been trained as a nurse. He'd worked as a nurse in a hospital in Venezuela. And when the crisis got to a breaking point and he couldn't take it anymore, he rode a bus for eight days to get to Lima, Peru. He said in Venezuela that it was uh, only possible to maybe get enough food for a day in the area that he was in. He said you'd do well to get food for a day. He said, but here we can get food for a week. This young man's prayer request that night was that God would provide food for his family, particularly those back in Venezuela. And here's the thought that came to my mind. I've spent my life thinking about what I was not going to eat or what I was not going to drink because I've always lived in a life of great provision, and here these people are trying to figure out what they are going to get to eat and what they are going to get to drink, and there is a different type of pursuit when that's the case. And Jesus is speaking of spiritual hunger and thirst, of our desire for God. In the language of hunger and thirst in the Bible, 
is well known. Uh, God says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come and buy and eat and you will delight in the richest affair, Isaiah 55 and verse 1 and 2. Or what about Jesus' offer in John chapter 6 and verse 35? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So to hunger and to thirst for righteousness means that we should eagerly pursue righteousness, that we should make it the aim of our lives to pursue this godliness that God has for us. And Paul lists six character traits that are to be pursued. The first that he mentions is righteousness. This does not refer to our righteous standing in Christ, which we receive at salvation, but outward righteousness. So think about it this way. He's saying, because you are righteous, you need to pursue righteousness. Because you've been given the gift of salvation by God and you have right standing with him, you're to pursue righteousness in your life because God has saved us and made us righteous in Christ. We have a different kind of pursuit in who we are. Godliness can be translated God-likeness, a basic reverence toward God. These are inward qualities that result in outward action. Godliness is a desire to honor and exalt God in everything. Now, if someone were to, to describe your life and they were to ask this, hey, tell me, tell me what he's really like. Hey, tell me a little bit about what, what she's really like. What would be the response? Would, would in those adjectives or those descriptions of your life, would anybody say, he's a godly man? She is a godly woman. You understand, godliness is not reserved for some super category of Christian. This is not just for the missionaries or those who would serve in vocational capacities in the church. This is for every Christian every day, that we are to be godly and we are to pursue godliness. And that should be the very nature and character of who we are in Christ. Faith is dependability because of the faithfulness of God. We can be faithful and trustworthy toward him. Love is an act of the will where we love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves and we even love our enemies because God has first loved us. And then he mentions endurance. Endurance is to be able to bear up under something. It's to be able to stand up under the load and to keep on pressing forward, whatever the obstacles are in our lives. To endure is to be able to stand strong through trials and difficulties. And let's just be honest, nobody likes trials and difficulties. We don't pray for them. We don't long for them. We don't joy in them usually, although we should because of what God is doing in us. But here's the beauty of it all. If you've been a Christian very long at all, you can look back in your life and you can see where God has been faithful. Even when you were faithless, God remained faithful. And you endured a particular hardship or difficulty or hurt or experience in your life that you would have never wanted to come about. But you look back and you say, my God was faithful to me. And because he was faithful to me, I'm going to be the same way in my life. I'm going to be faithful to him. And you can see how you push through those obstacles and you push through those difficulties and you remain faithful And you lived out your faith in him and you endured even through some dark days of your life. That's the kind of life that we are to be pursuing in righteousness and holiness. And then he mentions gentleness as well. I'll just say if you want to understand gentleness, understand Jesus. Jesus spoke boldly, clearly, consistently, 
Light encountered darkness when Jesus spoke, but he did it with a gentle spirit. Which one of these characteristics do you need to grow in? Which one of these characteristics needs to be stirred up and pursued in your life so that you can be more like Jesus? I find it interesting the way Peter frames the whole argument for holiness in 1 Peter and then in 2 Peter as well. He tells us that we're to be holy because our Father in heaven is holy in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then in his second letter, he goes straight to the point and he says you're to grow in godliness. So the beauty of this is God does not say pursue holiness and grow in godliness and do the best you can. You understand that this gospel by which we are saved, which is the power of God into salvation, it's not only enough to save us, it's enough to sustain us and to lead us through life. So God's not saying, I'm going to save you by grace, but now I'm going to make you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do the best that you can to grow in godliness. No, he's saying that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that resides in you. And it's that power that gives you the ability to grow in godliness and to be more like Jesus. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Verse 3, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. Let me translate that for you. God says, Be holy because I'm holy. And then He says, I'll give you everything that you need. You have it all. The provision, the resources, the power, the encouragement, you have it all. And holiness only results from a right relationship with God in Jesus Christ. This is an important point. I don't want you to lose where I'm headed with this. Perhaps you are not yet a follower of Jesus. And I want to draw a stark contrast here for you in the difference between biblical Christianity and the religions of the world. God says, this is what I have done for you through my son Jesus so that you can be right with me and be forgiven and have eternal life. Religion says, this is what you must do in order to be right with whoever or whatever your concept of God is. Christianity stands alone as the message of grace that God offers to you. He offers to me what we could not do for ourselves. It was impossible for me to reconcile myself to God. I would not even have known I was dead were it not for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit spiritually. And when I was presented with the truth of God's Word and the Spirit of God worked to convict me and to draw me to His Son, Christ. So if we have placed our faith in God's Son alone to save us, then our pursuit of holiness is worthwhile. But if we haven't, we're just going through a bunch of religious exercises. You've got to start at the starting line. And the starting line is faith in Jesus so that you can have a relationship with the living God. And then from there, you grow. You develop. You mature. You experience the things of life that test you and sharpen you and refine you. And all the while, you're looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher 
of our faith. Characteristic number three. A life worth living is one that fights the good fight for the faith. The good fight of the faith that God has called us to. That's what he says in verse 12. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The word fight here is the same word from which we get our English word agonize. It was applied most directly to athletes and to soldiers. And think about how impressive the top-level athletes are. They, they go through struggle, even though they're, they're naturally gifted. I mean, nobody excels unless they're willing to, to go through the struggle and they're willing to fight the fight so they can be excellent athletically. It's the same way with a soldier. A soldier has to be trained and he has to understand precision. He has to understand the enemy that he's up against. He has to understand the, the battle that is going on and to be victorious. He has to be able to fight and to agonize. And literally it means to keep on fighting. So we might say it this way, agonize the good agony. So it's a person that is straining and giving his best to win the contest or to win the battle. And the fight is a good fight because of what we are fighting for. You say, why does it matter if we fight for the truth? Here's why it matters. It matters because when we fight for the truth, we are articulating what God has said in the purity and the veracity of the gospel so that people might believe, so that people might be saved, so that people might enter into the presence of God, so people might spend eternity with God. And that's what we desire because that's God's heart. And if we're not fighting for the faith and the gospel gets watered down or the gospel gets perverted or the gospel gets confused, it's going to confuse people that don't yet know the Lord. And it's also a fight that is worth fighting for because we don't want God's people to be led astray. We don't want God's people to be confused. We don't want Satan to gain the victory, even though it's temporary and we know that Christ has ultimately won the victory. We don't want him gaining a toehold in people's lives. You say, well, how can I fight a good fight? How can I contend for this faith? Well, it begins by recognizing the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. You just got to realize you're in a battle to begin with. Jesus said that we have an enemy, and that enemy is Satan, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy if possible. There are a number of things that are communicated in the Scripture that articulate Satan's strategies against us. Uh, The preacher John Piper categorized those in something he called Satan's ten strategies against you. He said Satan lies, and he's the father of lies, John chapter 8 and verse 44. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. Satan masquerades in costumes of light and righteousness, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 to 15. Satan does signs and wonders, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9. Satan tempts people to sin, Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. Satan plucks the word of God out of people's hearts if he at all possibly can, Mark chapter 4. Satan causes some sickness and disease, by no means all, Luke chapter 13 and verse 16. Satan is a murderer, John chapter 8 and verse 44. Satan fights against the plans of missionaries, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Satan accuses Christians before God, Revelation 12 and verse 10. So the summary of that is that he does whatever is necessary to draw people away from God 
and to confuse and to confound, to blind and to destroy and kill if possible. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. It is against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The reason that we are told that we need to fight the good fight of the faith is because we're engaged in a battle and we have an enemy and there are spiritual forces of darkness that are coming against the spiritual forces of light. And in the midst of all this, we are to be good soldiers for Christ. And a good soldier has to have the equipment that he needs both to defend himself and also to be the aggressor in terms of promoting and living for and contending for the truth of God. And that's why Paul would follow in the verses after he tells us the, the nature of the battle, the spiritual darkness that we're up against, he would say in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. And then he says this, stand therefore. He's talking about driving your stake down and saying, I realize the battle that I'm in here. I am a representative of light because I follow Jesus, who is the light of the world. And he has said that I am the light of the world. So therefore, I'm going to stand with truth like a belt around my waist. Verse 14. And I'm going to have righteousness like armor on my chest. And I'm going to have my feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. And then in every situation, I'm going to take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's a spiritual battle that requires spiritual preparation, and it requires us being willing to contend. Now, let me just tell you, you can't do this if you are a complacent, consumer-oriented lukewarm, half-hearted Christian. You cannot do this if you are playing the spiritual game. If you're just going through the motions in church so that you can do your religious duty, you are not the one who is going to fight the good fight of faith. You're going to be the one who is going to be the target most of the devil because he wants to take you out and he wants to keep you from learning God's truth. And he's calling you to step up and not be a part-time Christian, but to be a full-time servant of God. And Jude wrote that we are to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Sometimes that means that we're going to have to engage with false doctrine, just like Peter and John did when they confronted those who denied the second coming and even the incarnation. At other times, we're going to have to emphasize the active nature of faith, like James did when he told us to love in word and in deed. At other times, we've got to defend the gospel with gentleness and respect, even if it brings suffering to our lives. And what this tells us is that there is a faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints is a faith that is worth fighting for. A faith that is worth fighting for is also a faith that is continually under attack. And every one of us has a responsibility to step forward in the battle. And here's the problem in a lot of churches, or so-called churches at least, there are a lot of people that think they're smarter than God is. So they say things like this, come on people, we're in the 21st century. We've got to modernize ourselves when it comes to this particular moral issue. 
Come on, people, this is about our personal rights. This is about what we want. This is about our convenience. Come on, you, you can't be stuck in this ancient book. Oh, there's some religious principles here that you can live by. There's some things that you can draw truth from, but we're smarter than God. Some of this stuff, Paul just said that. You don't have to worry about that. Paul said that. Jesus didn't say that. Paul just said that. And all of a sudden, what happens is we put ourselves in a place where we're sitting in judgment on the Word of God rather than the Word of God shining light into the reality of our lives and our need for Him. But I remind you, this is nothing new. You remember what happened in the garden? The fundamental problem was this. The question was asked, did God really say? It's a foundational problem. Has God said? And it's the question that continues to be the question. And that's why the Bible is continually under attack. And that's why the Bible will continue to be under attack until Jesus returns. Because we have an enemy who wants you to think that this word is not true. And you've got to decide somewhere along the way, either it's true or it's not. Friend, it is an all or nothing decision. If you make the right decision, even in the things that you don't fully understand, and you yield yourself to God and you say, God, I believe your word is true, and I'm going to fight the good fight of the faith, God can use you. Stephen Cole wrote this. He said, the history of the Christian church consists of repeated battles where the enemy introduces destructive heresies. Those heresies are confronted, and the truth is clarified and proclaimed. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy. Many other New Testament letters have the same polemic thrust. The great church councils and creeds, while not carrying scriptural authority, were attempts to correct false teaching and to set forth sound teaching. That's what Paul's trying to encourage Timothy to do, and that's what he's trying to encourage us to do. And along the way, we're to take hold of eternal life. What does it mean to take hold? Hold of eternal life. First of all, what is eternal life? Well, Jesus defined eternal life as knowing God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So to take hold of eternal life is a present tense possession for the Christian, and it is a future promise. Do not miss that point. Then we're not just talking about the by and by. We're not just talking about when the roll is called up yonder somewhere. It's now that we can have eternal life. If we have yielded ourselves to a holy God and we recognize that he is the only way to salvation and we see our sinfulness for what it is and we come to him in faith and we trust in his son who was crucified and buried and raised from the dead and who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, we are saved and we have the possession of eternal life as much as we will ever have it. And it is a gift God says it's yours, but you got to receive it. And then it's also a future promise. We've only begun to experience all the good that God has for us. God Himself and Jesus, His Son, and the Holy Spirit will be the treasure of heaven. And Timothy, he already had eternal life. Paul's already made that clear. He's not saying you need to get eternal life. He's saying you need to to take hold of it. You need to lay hold of it. And he said you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What kind of confession have you made for Christ 
and the witnesses around you. He draws back to the example of the Christ when he was in the presence of Pilate and he made a strong confession. And you see, a life that is worth living is a life that is going to make a strong confession for the king who is described here as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I give you this and we're going to close. Keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, wait a minute, that's impossible. And you'd be right. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. The God who calls you to keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God who will empower you to be faithful. He's the only sovereign. There's only one eternal king. And if there's only one eternal king and he is sovereign over all, then certainly I'm going to look to him for my hope because God is God over all of creation, over all of eternity. And we say to you, God, you are our hope. God is the one who has immortality. We're temporary on this earth. There's going to be a time when we will expire on this earth and we will enter into an eternal state, either in heaven or in hell. But it's God who possesses immortality. So if God possesses immortality, we're going to look to him for eternal life. We're going to say, God, and you alone are the one who possesses eternity. Our hope is in you. We look to you. We long for that eternal life to experience the fullness of it in your presence. And he's the one who dwells in unapproachable light. But he says, step into the light. Sin says, go deeper into the darkness. And Jesus says, step into the light. And although God lives and dwells in unapproachable light, he's invited us to come boldly and with confidence before his throne. And he closes here, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. That's our prayer, Father. To you be honor and eternal power. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment. As Eric is coming, we're going to sing a closing song and give you an opportunity to respond spiritually to what you have heard. Perhaps today you know that you have not come to a relationship with God in Christ and you need to be saved. He's calling you. Will you repent and believe in Jesus? Christian, maybe there's something in this message that has stirred you up and you said, God, I I know my life is, is not on that same trajectory. I'm not living a life that is worth living in the way that you want me to. Would you just be honest with God about that and say, God, help me to do what you want me to do to follow your will? God, we're grateful that you've not left us in the dark. You've given us your word and your spirit and your son. And we want to live lives that are worth living. I pray that especially for the men that are gathered here today. We have an opportunity to be an example, to be pace setters, to be uh, a loving example of Christ in our homes, in our workplace, and in the world. To be strong examples, to give a good testimony for Jesus. And I pray you'd help us to do that. Anything that's hindering us or keeping us from that, I pray you'd clean it out and clear it out of our lives so that we would honor you in all that we do. 
So we give this time of response and invitation over to you. Any good that comes from it, Lord, we'll give you the glory and the praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.